Hello there and welcome to the ninth anniversary episode of An Irishman Abroad with, you guessed it, me, Jarlath Regan. Nine years ago, while sitting on my bed less than a few months after moving my life, my family to England, I recorded the first ever episode of this series. And in so many ways, when I look back, it was a testament to the benefits of learning how to swim by throwing yourself into the pool or chancing your arm, depending on what way you want to look at it. I had no experience recording, zero experience conducting long form interviews. And to say I had no experience of the technological side of things would be an understatement. It was recorded over Skype. I had never heard of the term mixing outside of a kitchen. (laughs) I imported it into GarageBand, a piece of software that until that day had never been opened on my laptop. And I proceeded to make a complete balls of the edit, knowing that with each cut, the thing that I had recorded and felt proud of was dying in front of my eyes with each bad decision. I was like this shite surgeon who was just hacking away at a healthy person, hoping that something good might result. And I remember this wave of panic coming over me, similar to the one you get when you send a text message to the wrong person. It filled up my chest and I slammed the laptop shut and racked my brains for who I could call to save the day. And I remembered a lad who looked like Ronan Keating, who had hung around the comedy cellar and done some open spots. And I knew he was doing a PhD in sound in Maynooth. I don't know how I remembered this, but it was Last Chance Saloon. Back then, nobody had a notion about podcasts. If this guy didn't have the answer, we were dead on arrival. And it was 2013. Most people didn't know what podcasts were. It's hard to believe when you say that, but they didn't know why there was even an app on their phone for podcasts. Second Captains had inspired me. They had just started and they inspired me to believe that you could go out on your own and make good stuff. And if the stuff was good enough, the Irish at home and abroad would download it. That's literally all I had. That and the idea that long form interviews with Irish people that had emigrated and made a big wouldn't just be worth listening to they might actually help me figure out my own weird little path. I just didn't have a breeze as to how I could take this raw material, the one interview I'd done, and turn it into a show. I just had the name, An Irishman Abroad. Ronan Keating, sorry, Brian Connolly, got us up and running. A few months after that interview meltdown and email to Brian, we were on iTunes, with a logo designed for free by an old friend, Shane Langan. And by mid-August 2013, we were top of the charts on the cover of the Irish Times. And the line I often say in interviews about this stuff is, and the rest is history, but it's not. There really is a lot more that happened between then and now. Stuff I have never spoken about. Stuff that I thought, now that I'm home in Ireland, at long last, starting a new phase of the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. There'd be no harm in talking about it now, and maybe you'd be interested in hearing it. Today, on the show, to mark nine years of this series, 
that is exactly what I'm going to do. I'll throw in a couple of moments from the series that were pivotal. And then at the end, I'll tell you about a new thing, an exciting new project I'm about to embark on here in Ireland as I start this new phase of my life as an Irishman commuting abroad. I think you're going to love it. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! By far the most asked question is which of them, which was the most difficult interview of them all. And a lot of the time I say, I'm very lucky. All the guests are very giving and completely get on board right away. And to an extent, that is completely true. Some guests have asked to have things cut out. Some have re-recorded sections. Others have listened back and asked to have stuff taken out. And I don't mind that in any way, shape or form. This show doesn't exist without the guests. That has to be my first thank you of this whole thing. From Terry Wogan to James Parnell last week, Sharon Horgan to Ruby Walsh, Gabriel Byrne to Jason Byrne, Ashling B to Paul McGrath. I am so grateful to everyone who has sat down for one of these chats across the last nine years. Their generosity is the show. I have no clue what I might be doing without it. That said, there is only one guest who I thought might walk out. James McLean and Seamus Coleman probably kept their cards closer to their chest than anyone else, than anyone else could. They're footballers with a lot to lose. I completely got it. I didn't hold it against them for a second. But Dylan Moran, back in 2014, I just did not see this coming. I knew he didn't really do interviews at that time. It was Mark Marin and me. As far as I could see, it was just us. We were the only ones that got interviews with him at that time. Mark was uh, another friend of mine and a person who inspired the show. And his chat with Dylan was phenomenal. They talked about Navin, God, comic books, poetry, pints. And when Dylan agreed to meet me in a smoking area of a cafe in Edinburgh while I was up doing gigs, I was convinced this was it. The fact that he said yes was everything. This was going to be the best episode ever. I was researched up to my teeth, but from the word go, he was having none of it. I happy in my secondary school. I didn't enjoy it at all. Were you a kind of a brash, loud kid or were you more of a quiet one? I was quieter, I think. I was... I dressed loudly. I did the... I rebelled um, through use of colour. 
<laughs> and in that window between leaving school and to the point where stand-up presents itself, do you remember much about what you were doing with yourself in that time? I was writing and drawing. That's what I was doing. Where? Well, you don't need a place to do it. You just need a notebook. <laughs> well, were you living in Dublin? Like, oh yeah, I lived yeah. in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, I lived. I moved from Navan to Dublin, and uh, I lived up north for a while. I went to a school for a while up there, and then moved to London. You know, when you do as a young Irish person at that time, it was very bad. There was no chance of a job, uh, especially certainly not for the likes of me, because um, I had no qualifications and. Um, that was it. You you go to London. You know, I, by then I was earning some money on stage. Go right back to the point when stand-up presents itself to you. You expected going into the cellar that it was going to be crap, as I understand. You weren't expecting much from it. And then what is this? Pod? Is this a, is this a kind of a course <laughs> on how to get a job for young Irish people? Is well, that what really, it is? What, it, what what it's been in previous episodes and what people seem to be interested in is the point from being raised in Ireland to getting out of there, and then. Finding a life how elsewhere. How to find meaning? How to find now, gainful employment? Never mind meaningful employment, despite being Irish. Well, the truth of it is, not many people know how it did come about for you. All they know is that you saw Ardle, Barry. But that's it. That's all that happened. And that was the first time, though, you got paid for anything was when you five got pounds. a spot there. Five pounds for five minutes. So the decision, which was actually a very good rate back then. Yeah, hasn't changed a whole lot. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but uh, so the decision to go to London wasn't a. Oh, I'm going to make this big move. It was simply a yes, no, of no, course. it was. It was uh, what the but the big move was just earning a living. That was the move because right. that was that was a very exotic idea at the time in Ireland. I mean, there was it was very easy to the the slough of despond was all around you. So there was there was and there was available positions at all times. So it, you had to uh, make a move, you know. And you when you're young and stupid and you don't know anything, that's when you make the moves. Look at all the Irish, young Irish people pouring out of the country to go to wherever in the world at the moment. Loads of them flying, fleeing to Australia or anywhere they think they can get a job and make a start. It doesn't really matter what you're doing when you're that age at the beginning. Yeah. I wasn't the same person after that conversation. We ended up on good terms, but only when we had a bit of a row about something, as I remember it. I had nobody showing me how this was done. In that way, it was a lot like stand-up in many ways. You, you only learn by doing with this. And just when you think you have it, something else crops up that makes you rethink the whole thing. I used to ask people at the end of each episode, what is the one piece of advice you go back to again and again and again? And some of the answers to this question make it worthwhile digging through the archive just for that answer alone. Many were really philosophical and others, like Paul Kimmage, the Irish journalist and ex-cyclist who you might know helped to take down Lance Armstrong, were much more practical. He told me to always, always have a second audio recorder rolling. A couple of months later, when I sat down with a guest for an hour and chatted away and realised at the end we had only saved 30 minutes of that chat, I wished I'd listened to Paul. Well, I related straight away. I mean, I, people ask, well, how did you know? Because I wrote about it in 99 in this first tour. I was writing pieces in on a second here. This, this is not the fairy tale, you know. It's exactly why I ask it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that was easy, really. That was People say, how did you know? But, Jez, that was like, when you've been a professional cyclist, as I was, 
at a time when drugs are so prevalent, right? So prevalent. Um, and it, got, it gets worse in the 90s. And I know it's got worse because there's fellas dying and there's, I mean, the, the uh, substances are much more powerful and much more dangerous. And when you get this knight in shining armor who emerges from this awful, awful scene and he writes a book and there's no mention of drugs in it and he's interviewed and there's no mention of, of any drugs in it or doping in it, you think, hold on a sec, why is, why is he not addressing this if he's what he purports to be? Because again, you know, Armstrong, you, you look at Armstrong and his story, you know, had he come back, had he come back in 99 and written this book and said, look, you know, I actually, I had cancer and I got cancer because of all these performance enhancing drugs and cycling and it was wrong, but I've come back, I've beaten cancer, and now I'm gonna show people that in this new sport, because of what's happened in 1998, and the drugs aren't there anymore, and the sport is gonna change, as it was pledging it was gonna do. This is the new sport, this is, this is what clean cycling looks like. Well, if you listen to Lance Armstrong, it was, he, he was talking dirty cycling. From the moment he won his first tour, he was talking dirty cycling. And it was just as obvious as the nose on my face that he was lying. And did you identify with the temptation oh, or the yeah. lust to win? Uh, not his lust to win. I mean, I'd never experienced anybody that, you know, to come back from cancer. You would imagine he would have a lust for life. Whereas I always associated doping with the debt, with, with a, with a, a uh, you know, a guy who's prepared, prepared to sacrifice life and prepared to sacrifice everything for, for short-term success. So you would have imagined as, and again, this was the power of his, of what the legend was built on. People said, well, how would Lance, why would Lance Armstrong dope if, he, uh, if he'd cancer? That doesn't make sense. And it didn't make sense. But as I point out to uh, my, one of my best friends, Gary O'Toole, Olympic swimmer and former European uh, silver medalist at the breaststroke, who is now consultant surgeon and as intelligent intelligent a man as you're likely to meet. And we gave a talk recently in UCD and Gary is, gave his talk and he's, you know, he presents a point of view on this. And as I say to Gary, you know, cause I followed them up in this talk and I said, you know, I told the, the, the students there, I said, you know, in some ways Gary O'Toole is the worst person you could have talking about doping in sport because he's, so intelligent and he's so balanced and so normal uh, and he's actually the exception to what you find in sport because the champions in sport tend to be obsessives unbalanced you know that actually is what makes them champions mm. you know um they, they are very they are by nature very unbalanced people um and Lance Armstrong was, is the absolute example of that. It was that first 50 episodes of Irish Man Abroad would get the odd sponsor, like McClintock's Eyewear or Kyo's Crisps, Email Laundry or Bonkers.ie. But by and large, I was losing money and barely managing to pay Brian Connolly for his production work. But your emails kept coming in and without getting too schmaltzy, it was you guys listening that kept it going. Many of you I know have listened since day one. You kept it going. No question. 
you were the ones that made me think, no, this is good. This is worth it. And something good is coming of this. I can remember getting a call from Boy George on my birthday. I was literally about to blow out the candles and he kind of summons me to his mansion in West Hampstead to record his episode. And I just got in the car and I went. You're maybe not disdain for authority, but you had trouble with authority from an early age. When did that start to come about and what precipitated you leaving school at 15? We have to remember that, you know, Irish families, you know, back, back in the day, the father ruled the roost, you know, and, you know, my dad was, you know, my dad was very forceful. You know, my dad was very much, it's my way of the highway. And my mother in the very early years of their marriage was quite subservient. At least that's how it appeared to me. But as I grew up, I realized that my mother was actually quite strong and contentious and rebellious. And that really was the problem that my mum wouldn't toe line. And she was the sort of queen eye roller and tutter. And there was, there was violence and all of that. And more when we were very young, I think, you know, there was more of that, but, um, I think, you know, I used to think when I was very young, I thought my mum was quite, I didn't think she was very strong. And then as I've got older, I realized that she was a tank. Like she was the thing that held us together because. What made you realize that? Were the things I grew up, you know, I grew up a bit and realized actually, you know, she's held this family together unbelievably, you know, and also when we were kids, I remember often being taken to my grandmother's, like my, there'd be a row. My dad might smash the house up and my mum would take us to my grandmother's who'd send us back. We'd maybe get the weekend there and then it would be, you made your bed, lie in it. So I kind of grew up realizing that my mother really didn't have any escape room. Mm. You know, families always used to say, ah, but you know, you know, she's, he's your husband, you can't take his children away from him. So he would go back. Yeah. And you know, just the way things were, the fact that my dad was the sort of keeper of the pot, my mum got a certain amount of money if he didn't gamble it all. So holding it together was like a, it wasn't an easy job, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't just only my own family, you know, also relatives, you know, one of my dad's brothers, Michael Davy, died from alcohol and I used to kind of babysit for the family. And, you know, I had a very, very close relationship with, with his wife. I still do, you know, and I watched all of that, you know, the drink and the temper and that, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think in a way, you know, growing up. It was like my dad was this authority figure and outside of the house, you know, it was like, you're not going to treat me like that. You know, no one, he can get away with it. So for this house and he was always telling me that but it was just my house, my rules, if you don't like it, get out. So outside of the house, it was like, no one else is going to do that to me. Going places to record at the drop of a hat was what Irish Man Abroad was all about pre-pandemic. It didn't matter where. Duke special in Union Chapel, last second. Yes, I'll be there. We chat and it ends with him finding an abandoned piano and playing One is the Loneliest Number. One is the loneliest number you'll ever know Two can be as bad as one It's the loneliest number since the night or Terry Wogan in my local town hall. I hear about this last second. He's launching his book. They said I could have 10 minutes and he gave me 30. What would be the one piece of advice that Terry Wogan could share and stand by? 
Well, that's easy. I've always believed in this. There's a song called Only Kindness Matters. And we went to school, Catholic church, Catholic schools. The word was charity. Actually, kindness is charity. We must be kind. Try and be kind. When have you found it hardest to stick by that? I don't find it hard to stick by that. Never been challenged on it? Never been a time when you've been like, oh. No, I, I, I turn the other cheek a bit. As I say, I'm an optimist. I'm not going to dwell on rejection. I'm not going to accept it. So there's effectively two parts to it, in that mm. try and be kind, but don't dwell on those rejections. Got to be kind, but tough. Mm-hmm. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, John, Thank you yeah, very much. A great pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Over the phone still produced moments, and I would never forget, like the former IRA general and now barrister, Kieran Conway, looking back at the troubles, or Keith Gillespie explaining what gambling did to him. I think that would surprise people that you weren't actually, yeah, your, turn, your hit rate wasn't great. No, <laughs> that's an understatement. But uh, I think the one thing about when, when you're a gambler is you're you're always just the next winner. Mm. And I I always remember when I repeat that in the, in the bookmakers, uh, there's probably four, sometimes four races going off within the space of ten minutes. You know, dogs, horses, whatever. And I would have betting slips in my pocket from every single race, and. You think you can win every race, that's the thing about it. And there's so many times you go through a spell of losing, but you always feel that that's right, this next one's going to be the one It loses, the next one's going to be the one. And it's just like a, a sort of precious circle that you just can't get out of. You know, everything sort of just spirals out of control. And certainly when your wages increase, You've got more money at your disposal, and you obviously start betting more, and, and by then you're in too deep to get out. But in person, with the likes of Philomena Lee or Imelda May, you just can't, you can't replicate that over the phone. You know about the adjustment? Yeah, sure, and that it, it was kind of a, a moment. Very, very, very quickly. And I was in the laundry working, and um, they came down to tell me, quick, come on, quick, the nun, the nun, very nice young nun. She came up and she ran me up the stairs as fast as she could. And so I'm going off like that. And Joe, the little face at the back of the car, it, I still haven't forgotten. Clearest, clearest day. There's 15 minutes to add you would have been 63 in July, 5th of July. So there's the anger. I think you, it was all for, for a long you, you say that you witnessed what anger does to people when you worked as a psychiatric nurse. I certainly did. And it was through that, yes. seeing that, that you started to gradually let it go. Yeah. Even when I went, because I didn't know anybody at all when I went to England, of course. And then after about two years in the boys' school, I used to do a reception. I used to help the nursing sister with the boys and any problems that cropped up, that sort of work I did. But I had no experience of any of it, but I did help out and did all the jobs they wanted me to do. But then, after about two years, I thought, I, I could just come on, go on. I've got to, it's been something within me. I've got to find myself a career. I've got to find mm-hmm. myself a career. All this anger is not doing me any good. You know, I've got to find something. And I've always wanted to do nursing. So I applied, got the nursing where I applied. and applied to St. Orban's and um, got the job and started in psychiatry then. 
Of course, in those days, that was 1958. It came down in January 58. It was two years after Anthony had gone. He went in December 55. And then they got me a job quickly in Liverpool to get me out, stop me, all this. Yeah. You know, and um, because I, I created so much crying going on. They got rid of me in a fortnight later. They got me out. So they they said that there was too, this emotion yeah. that you were feeling. You're obviously heartbroken. All I could say was, stop your nonsense. He should be very lucky. He's going to good Catholic home in America. And that's all I ever knew about Anthony all of my life. Face to face, intimate conversations built Irish Man Abroad. And to a large extent, at times when I didn't feel very good about myself, these conversations helped me in ways that I can never fully explain. I always found it hard to gauge how much of what I was going through and my life should be in the show at that time. Uh, especially when I considered the best interviewers, the ones that I loved, like Parkinson and Terry Gross, and how they got out of the way and let the guests speak. But uh, all that went out the window when my brother asked me to donate a kidney to him. It was just a no-brainer, really, that the podcast should be used as a way to show people that live donation was something anyone could do and something that many people should do to help others avoid dying needlessly on kidney waiting lists across the world. And the episode I made while in the Mayo Clinic was easily the hardest episode to make. But since then, the clinic has used it to show people how the process can work. Hello there. I am speaking to you from the other side of this experience. And, you know, I can't breathe too deeply at the moment because there's a certain amount of pain, but I'll tell you this. The transplant uh, took place successfully yesterday, February 2nd, 2017. We were both prepped, me and my brother, side by side, and we bumped knuckles, and it happened thanks to the wonders of anesthesia. It felt like it was over in a split second. Dr. George Chow removed my kidney it was rinsed and it was placed in a preserving fluid and then quickly transplanted by another surgeon in the theatre next door into my brother Adrian. Uh, I'm told that once it was attached, it immediately oxygenated and started working there and then in the theatre, which just blows my mind right now even to say it. But once I woke up fully, I was informed that he had passed urine and I'll tell you, that relief is immense. Five hours later, <laughs> five hours, five hours later, I was walking around unsupported in a bit of pain, but honestly, just floating. And yesterday, my brother's creatinine and cal calcium levels were through the roof. That's very bad. And today, <laughs> after a night's rest, thanks to those surgeons, and let's face it, thanks to my incredible kidney, those levels are normal. But that was 2017. It was the beginning of 2017. And I'm happy to say my brother, I should point out, is in the best health he's ever been in. 
I still get emails from people who have volunteered for the live donation process off the back of that episode. And I want to say here and now that my email is always open. If anyone wants to contact me about it, I will talk to anyone about it at any time. Podcast at gmail.com. But the last five years, when I tried to look back on it, has much more so than the first four been a complete blur. We have had extraordinary moments like Gabriel Byrne, the repeal campaign, Bob Geldof, like Bob Geldof. I mean, I chased that interview for five years straight. We were good friends with the Pistols. Why? Because Johnny, Johnny uh, Lydon is Irish. I mean, his both his parents, whom I met, were both Irish. And he went back every year to Ireland, to his family. And all they knew were the Irish around them. And one of the interesting things is that if you look at the rebel voices in rock and roll, the punk voices, you get uh, Johnny Lydon, you get Morrissey from the Smiths, you get the Gallagher brothers, you get Elvis Costello, uh, whose name is Declan McManus, his dad was one of the big show band singers, Ross McManus, you get Boy George, George Murphy, you get goes on and on and on, uh, Johnny Marr from the Smiths, his name is actually Maher, and uh, it goes on and on, and aired all the ones who were very erudite, very articulate, and, you know, kicking against stuff. And I think what punk was, was the combination of the first generation of Irish migrants uh, after the massive migration exit from the 50s, 60s, their children meeting the first generation of children of the Windrush, the West, the Jamaican kids who, whose parents arrived in the 50s as well. And they group together because they're both on the wrong side of the tracks and they make a new music which gives them entree. And that's precisely what Elvis and Little Richard did. And I genuinely believe the same thing happened with Pump. And we just happened to come along in that exact same year with a decent record and off we went. The last two years throw everything into perspective. In the words of Spinal Tap, a bit too much bloody perspective, to be honest. We had to pivot Irish Man Abroad, but Sonia O'Sullivan joined the team, uh, changed my life, gathered a whole new bunch of listeners through her crack and sense of fun about running and alternative medicine. Like if you have an injury in a kind of a tight spot, like in your Achilles Mm. or in just an area that's hard to really get the blood flow going, is to go and get some nettles. And just, can you believe that? What's going on? Don't tell me. (laughs) Give yourself a nettle. Give yourself an actual nettle sting. Yeah. So to sting yourself with the nettles. What? This is a piss take, Sonia. This is is the ice bath all over again. Are you serious? Who told you this? Was this like a hobo under a bridge? No, no. we'll, We'll have to look this up now later on. But this is, it's definitely a thing using nettles to stimulate the blood flow in an injury area. I mean, it makes and, sense. I mean, I mean I, 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 like on paper, it, but like, who, who would do this? Did you do it? I have run through some nettles, not <laughs> with that purpose, but <laughs> when I've run through the nettles, I've kind of thought, oh, it's probably good for me anyway, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm running around Fota Island and there's one section that you have to get through. 
and you just go for it, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. It's probably good for me to run through these nettles. Now, come on. That's, that's amazing. But it, it's amazing. It's a, it's, a, it's a big distraction factor because if you get nettled, any other ache or pain or symptom that you have when you're out for a run is gone because yeah. you're so focused on this what's, annoying nettles thing. What's thing. On you? That, would, that would not be how medicine works. <laughs> You go to the doctor and he hammers your hand with a mallet and goes, are you thinking about the pain in your foot anymore? That's, that doesn't make, like I hear your reasoning, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. Let's be totally honest. I, I, I know, I, I know. <laughs> yeah. the do- if you go- arrive into a doctor's office and the doctor brings out a bag of nettles, get the fuck out of there. That doctor doesn't know what he's doing. Marion McKeown became my other co-host and guided us through the rise and fall of Donald Trump in a way that literally nobody else could. Everything seems to be almost of a piece. I can, every one of the stories that you've just outlined, there is an underlying connection, which there is in so many stories. And it's it's fear and the, the knee-jerk reaction to fear. So let's get into Virginia, where no matter how they're trying to spin it at the moment, and by God, they're spinning it ferociously. It's on the super spin, the fastest spin possible on the spin machine. Uh, the Democrats, this was a humiliating loss for the Democrats. Now they're saying, oh, you know, they're wheeling out all these statistics where they're going, well, it's only happened once in 700 years that a governor was elected twice with a gap in between, blah, blah, blah. The fact is that these races are always referendums on what's going on with the party in power. If Irishman started as an arm chancing endeavour where I learned to swim by jumping off the pier, then our spin-off series like Irishman Behind Bars, Irishman Inside Basketball, Men Behaving Better, Selection Box, and the and the online comedy club. Remember that? I think that all continued the tradition of just giving it a go. Why not? And that is that is what built the show. That is the spirit of the show. I always said our plan was to move back to Ireland so that Mikey could go to secondary school, but I never really thought it would happen. I know Tina didn't think it would happen. I know Tina's parents didn't think it would happen, but here we are. Brexit has happened and something new is about to begin. As I said at the top of the show, Irishman Abroad Podcast has a new project here that I know you're going to love, but I can't announce just yet. It will launch in September. So between now and then, we will be making the big Sunday interview once a month, not weekly, while Marion and Sonia will remain weekly. It will it will still be me traveling back and forth to England each week and Irishman a little less abroad, but you will keep getting this podcast as long as it is supported by you. Uh, or those of you that sign up on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad, those people that stepped in when we lost our sponsor on the first day of the pandemic, when they couldn't run that day, I'll never forget it. I need to shout them out. I need to shout a few of them out. For starters, uh, Deck Ryan. Uh, who else have we got here? Let me pull them up. Kira Brady. Neil Sinnott, Neve Cullen, Helen Buckley Hoffman, Mary Barron, 
Michael Regan, Gráinne Byrne, Kieran Hayes, Barry Fitzgerald, Damian Ryan, Gareth Murphy, Ashling Dwyer, Kieran O'Byrne, Sean Devaney, Louise Shorten, Eddie Barron, Alan Dowdall, Ralph Cunningham, Fiona McVeigh, William Murphy, Charlotte Scannell, Daniel O'Reilly, Jan Irnone, Michael Tomlinson, I mean, Ethna Tobin, I could keep going and I wish I could because every single one of you Irishman Abroad and all of those that enjoy it for free on the other platforms in a smaller form owe you a huge debt of gratitude. Wall Hello for his design work. Check out Wall Hello if you want design work like we have. Huge thanks to him. Rob Broderick again for saving the podcast in its darkest hour. Brian Connolly again for all his countless hours of work. Mikey for always understanding why daddy can't play right now. (laughs) And of course, Tina, for being the absolute best imaginable partner through all of this craziness. She is the Irish man abroad in every way that I am, and I'll never be able to repay her, but I'll try. Thanks for listening and being ultrasound. Onwards for another nine years at the very least. Jordan's reading heading over to London to see what lies beyond the shores, Mike, and I really hope it works out tremendously well for him. Hello, you're listening to the Irishman Abroad podcast with me, Jarnath Regan. This is episode one. I am extremely excited about it. The move to England seems to have worked out for the best as Jarlath's chat show podcast and Irishman Abroad has a million listeners every week. It's always up in the top one, two or three of the most popular podcasts in a given week. Irishman Abroad has earned rave reviews for fancy newspapers like The Guardian, The Irish Times. I listened to a lovely interview this week by Jarlath Regan on the Excellence and Irishman Abroad podcast. He has just returned from a trip to the Edinburgh Fringe where he recorded the 100th episode of his hugely popular broadcast series, An Irish Man Abroad. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm a big fan and it's going from strength to strength. The experience in Europe was beautiful. Jar with Regan, he did a great job. I met him in Edinburgh. The one, the one I like is the Irishman Abroad one, and mainly because the, his interview style is so brilliantly ramshackle. At the start, it really annoyed me. It has to, it really annoyed me at the very start. When they sweat the technique, I think it's ramshackle. Yeah. No, I, I think Charlotte actually really is ahead of the game. Actually, when he's interviewing, it's uh, an honour, Charlotte, to love your podcast. So <laughs> well, thanks, thanks a lot. Somebody told me about your podcast a few years ago, and I obviously travel a lot. The Irishman abroad definitely take the box, and I've downloaded a lot of your podcasts. And most of all, it's a time for honesty, lads. Honest Ken, early there. How you doing, Mark? <laughs> Honest Ken, you showed the way in the very first broadcast I heard in 2017. This is from an Irishman abroad. I think you had half of the uh, previous uh, Irish rugby team on it. I was getting, uh, for God's sake, will you, will you, will you do me a favour? Will you get him <laughs> off my back? Will you just talk to him? Will you? <laughs>